Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen. you've heard it, deep in the gathering gloom of your room at night, the almost imperceptible sound of creaking, the almost silent footfalls of something unseen. You know you felt it, the breath on the back of your neck, the icy chill that raises the hairs on your arms, the feeling of being watched by something on the other side of the room. You know you've seen it, the figure standing in the corner that is blacker than black, that thing that swallows every ounce of light in the room. Could it swallow your very soul? Welcome. We have been expecting you. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to the History Goes Bump 2016 Halloween special. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. We're going to be bringing you a bunch of stories from your fellow listeners. Some of them have told them for themselves and others have typed them out. As we read the stories, we're just going to do this on a first name basis. And we do have a couple that wanted to remain anonymous as well. We think you're really going to enjoy this. Before we read those stories, we'd like to wish you all a very happy Happy Halloween. Halloween. You guys be safe out there and don't get into too much mischief. Miranda joined us to talk about the gin and we've gotten a ton of feedback on that episode. You guys really enjoyed it and were really creeped out. Well, she shares some more stories of experiences that she's had with gin and unseen things. Where do I start? I don't think it was one spirit in general. I think there were many spirits over those years that kind of made themselves known to us. But like I said, it definitely all started that New Year's Eve night. As I said earlier, it had snowed very heavily that night. We were down south in Denver, and it didn't make sense for me to drive all the way north to come home that night. It was The roads were horrible. And I think all of us sitting around telling ghost stories, we'd all kind of scared ourselves to death. So we had to take my friend's little sister home. And when we got her home, she was about, I want to say 15 or 16 at the time. And I think we were all in shock, maybe like one or two in the morning at that point. And we were all just sitting in the living room, deciding what to do. And all of us were a little too 
embarrassed to admit that we were this scared. Finally, I said, you know, I'm tired. I don't want to go home. Let's all sleep in the same room together. I told his little sister, you know, I'll sleep in the bed with you. And my friend agreed to sleep on the floor. So we were all sleeping in the same room together that night. And it was really cold. And in the middle of the night, I felt her brother crawl in bed with us. I had my back to him. And I, in my head, I just knew it was him. So I didn't even turn to look. And it made sense to me. You know, it was freezing on the floor. Why should he sleep on the floor? Of course, he would get in the giant bed with all of us. It just made sense to me. And I fell asleep immediately. And when I woke up the next morning, it was just me and his sister in bed. And he was laying on the floor. And I questioned him later. I said, why did you get back out of bed? You know, it was freezing. Neither of us would have blamed you if you wanted to sleep in bed. He said, I never got in bed with you. And so I asked his little sister later, and she said that she felt him crawl in bed too. So something crawled into bed with us that night, and it wasn't him. And that was that was the first night. Uh. I know. So that was the first night after we'd all heard and shared these stories. The second night, I went home, and I had the most horrible nightmare I've ever had in my life. It was so vivid and so gruesome. I woke up from it and I was so scared. I, I couldn't go back to sleep. I went downstairs and I stayed awake until the sun came up. And as I said before, it's believed that Jin can mess with your dreams. And I fully believe that that second night that something was in my house trying to prove itself to me. Like I said, they can seem very aggressive sometimes. They It's almost uh, almost funny to them that they want to make themselves known. It's funny that we never knew them before, and now they have this opportunity to show us in very scary ways that they are present. Sure, they know we're talking about them, so it's like, well, let me show up. And I've always heard that when we're sleeping, we're our most vulnerable, so it would make sense that they try to do the dream thing. Yeah, and you can interact with these things in your dream state. So not only are you vulnerable when you're sleeping, but you're also kind of on the same plane as they are already when you're dreaming. So it makes sense that they're able to interact with you then. So that was the second night I had that horrible dream. The third night, something moved in my room. I used to keep my door cracked at night so that my cats could come in and out of the room whenever they wanted. And I had this giant fan that I would place in front of the door so that it wouldn't swing wide open. And my roommate at the time used to joke with me and she would throw herself at my door, pretending to fall on it, trying to open it. And when that fan was in front of the door, my roommate throwing her entire weight on that fan could never move it. It was heavy. So the, the third night of all of this happening, I woke up in the middle of the night and I saw that my door was wide open and that giant heavy fan had been moved across the room. And I don't know who did it. I still to this day believe that there was something in the house over those nights that was just trying to make itself known. And it did so in a very invasive way. You know, it, it opened the door to my room without my permission. It didn't, it didn't feel like a friendly energy that was in the house. Not that it felt evil either. It just, it very much just wanted to make me know that it was around. Another experience I had was at my own office. It was around Halloween. It was on a Friday. My office had had their Halloween party that day. I was a receptionist at the time, and I was the night receptionist, so after everyone had finished with the party, they had all left and gone home. I was on the phone with my boyfriend at the time, and I was telling him all the scary stories that we'd shared with each other that day. One of my friends, who was also a receptionist, had been telling me stories about her husband, who was 
a pastor and how he had been asked to be involved with exorcisms up near the Brighton community in Denver. So I was telling my boyfriend this over the phone, and I think I finished the story with, isn't that the scariest thing you've ever heard? And the instant I said that, all the lights went out in the office. (laughs) I know. At the time, I was working out in Interlochen, so I was in one of the big the big buildings, one of the skyscraper buildings. I don't know if the lights went out in the whole building, but all the lights went out on my floor. And at the time, I was the only one in the office. The phone didn't go out. The computers didn't go out. It wasn't the power. It was just the lights. And they stayed off. So at this point, I was freaking out, thinking that I had offended a spirit or provoked a spirit somehow. And I was afraid to get up from my desk. So I made my boyfriend promise that he'd stay on the phone with me. Again, I'm not elegant in the face of danger. Made him promise that he'd stay on the phone with me. And I went around to the offices around the lobby that I sat in to turn on all of those lights. Now the lights in the offices around the lobby would come on, but the lights in the lobby where I had to sit would not turn on. And so I was really scared at this point. I I really feel like I upset a spirit that night. But just telling these stories so casually, I feel like I offended something. And it was like, well, if you you think that story was cool and that it was made up, I'll show you. Mm -hmm. And it did. In the end, I begged and pleaded with my boyfriend to come get me from the office because I had to stay there through the rest of my shift, but I didn't want to be there alone. So he ended up coming to stay with me, but I I was terrified the whole time. Another experience I had, I had with you guys, it was at the Croke Patterson mansion. Mm -hmm. You know, we were standing across the street from the mansion. And as the tour guide was talking and telling us the stories, I just felt something kind of overtake my body slowly. It it started in my feet and it trickled up um, almost to my rib cage. And it just felt as though my whole body was slowly filling with lead. And I felt uncomfortable. I felt invaded. And as soon as we left that Spot. I didn't feel it anymore. And I think I mentioned to you guys, you know, did anyone else feel that while we were standing there? And nobody had. And it was the first time I'd met you. So I was really embarrassed. I was worried that um, now you thought I was a kook. <laughs> Are you kidding? You bought hot chocolate. We wouldn't think you were a kook. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I but remembered I you saying that you yeah. had felt really uncomfortable and that you'd felt like you were like walking in lead or that you felt really heavy. And I mean, the thing is, out of all the places that I visited that are haunted in Colorado, that is the only place that I visited where I had, and that was actually where I had my first ever supernatural experience slash feeling, and it was at that house. So the fact, I think what was scary for us and and weird was that we weren't in the house. We were actually across the street and you were having that kind of an experience. And it's like, whatever's going on with that particular building is so intense that it was able to reach across the street. And this is that building where the dogs, you know, you have these guard dogs that are these vicious animals that something scared them enough that they jumped out of windows and killed themselves. Yes. That story really stuck out with me over the next few weeks. <laughs> and again, like you said, whatever it was, was able to reach out from this building across the street to where we were standing. And you guys had even said later that there was a disturbance recorded mm-hmm. on the voice recorder that you had in your pocket. It was a static disturbance, right? I yes. believe we even played it on the show. Mm-hmm. And I said it was about yeah. the same time that you said you felt, I think we even have it. I, I can't remember if we caught you talking about how you said you felt weird. And then all of a sudden there was this weird staticky 
thing that I don't usually get with the recorder. I think what happened is I had that feeling. And then later on, when we walked to the, the Molly Brown mansion, I think that's where I mentioned, did anyone else have a feeling back at the Croke Patterson mansion? Yeah, you're right. I think one of my favorite experiences is there was something I used to have um, like a storage room in my house. So no one really went in there. It was it was just filled with furniture and boxes and stuff. So it was a very quiet room. And it is believed that Jen liked to live in lonely places. A lot of people say they live in the wilderness or in abandoned buildings or in empty rooms and houses. And so um, I didn't always have a feeling when it came to that room. A few years after living in the house, I just slowly started having a feeling that there was something in there. My boyfriend at the time, who was my friend who could, who could whose family could um, see these spirits and interact with them, he kept his clothes in that room, or he started keeping his clothes in that room, and I finally asked him one day if there was something in there, because that room was just giving me the creeps. And he said, yes, there's a woman in there, and he described her to me, and he described her dress, and that was that. You know, I just knew to stay out of that room. However, about a week later, I went down south to visit his family, and his sister's girlfriend approached me and said, have you seen something? Like, you, you just seem nervous lately. And I said, well, you know, I think there's something in the house. And this girl told me, yeah, I know there is. And she described spirit to me. She described it the same way that my boyfriend had. And I said, well, that's weird. You know, did you, did you guys talk about this? Did he tell you about this spirit? And she said, no. No, he hasn't, but I can smell her on you. <laughs> that was always one of my favorite stories. I don't know what the spirit smelled like, and I don't know how this girl was able to get a visual picture of the spirit from her smell. But like I mentioned before, some people don't have to see them. They just, it's almost as if a picture is placed in their minds through this state of think feeling, and they're able to experience that spirit that way. And this one is from Holly. The jail in our town is said to have a friendly ghost of a jailer who wanted nothing more than to be a deputy. Many of the dispatchers start right out of high school with the same hopes of being a Leo, law enforcement officer. Our ghost had diabetes type 1 and during the time period he lived could not serve. During the 70s and earlier, there were living quarters for the jailer to live in to handle nighttime emergencies. Unfortunately, he died one night in his quarters from complications of his IDDM. His ghost is said to have been seen many times comforting inmates while they are scared or sick, or he might be heard walking the hall to check to make sure the bars are secure. He wears a full deputy uniform with hat. There is supposed to be a VHS tape that shows him walking to the woman's wing. There's a hot debate if it was a glitch in the tape from being frequently recorded over and over or if it is proof of the ghost. I work with some of the bravest, no-nonsense men and women there in the state. Some of the meanest and toughest Leos I know believe in the deputy. He is a benevolent spirit that protects us from harm in the jail. Inmates with mental health histories or detoxing off drugs will ask which jailer sat with him or her overnight stroking their hair. And we know it wasn't one of us. Some of the dispatchers' jailers talk to him and ask what type of night it's going to be or ask for extra protection. I have not researched news articles to see if there's any fact in the story, but I am quite happy that he was there when I was there. This one is from Gina. August 1985. I was 11 years old. My parents had a growing family but did not want to uproot us from our neighborhood entirely, so they moved us seven blocks to a two-story home. It was a fixer-upper. 
I felt really grown up and excited that my parents trusted my sister Evie and I to paint the interior of the house on our own. My mother dropped us off and would be back by lunch. We locked the front door and got to work painting the wall next to the stairs. We were having too much fun as a paint fight ensued. I started feeling crummy. I figured it was because I had woken up too early for Saturday and had not eaten breakfast yet. Went outside and stretched out on a picnic table in the backyard. And then I heard a deep voice say, Hello, Gina Nelson. We had not met any neighbors yet. Needless to say, I was terrified and ran into the safety of the house and related the experience to my older sister, who said it must have been paint fumes. I knew she was wrong, but wanted to appease her and agreed. And we finished our job of painting. Later, when we finished the painting, we went home and my best friend and her grandmother had arrived with a truck to help us move some larger items. My friend and I stayed behind between loads and we went to the backyard and sat on the same table and I got goosebumps and so did she. So I told her my experience from earlier. As I was doing so, we looked up as we saw movement from across the yard. There was an elderly fellow in a red ball cap walking towards us. I looked over at my friend disbelieving what I was seeing. We were both ghostly white. We looked back in that same direction and the guy was gone. There was a hat later found in the rose bush and we once again discounted what we'd seen. We took the hat and set it next to the back door so we could show it to my parents when they got back. My grandparents arrived on the scene and suggested we have a slumber party on the floor in the new house. There were two things that added to our experience in a big way. There was a strange plumbing issue going on which was making the toilet flush every hour on the hour. Also, my dad had removed the hardware from the upstairs rooms and had left some windows open upstairs for ventilation. So Grandpa's telling us stories and we keep hearing doors creak open and slam and then toilets flushing. We're counting heads and realizing we're all accounted for. Didn't sleep much that night, but in the morning I woke up to my grandpa and my dad carrying a damaged back door to the truck and scratching their heads about how it got that way. When my sister and I went to the back door, we saw that the red ball cap was gone. No matter how many layers of paint my dad used on that house, we could see the quote-unquote bones of the house when the sun shined on the wall. There were doorbells installed and random closets in the garage and house. My sisters and I would use the buddy system when going to the bathroom until we finally adjusted to the new house. We got mail all the time for some people that had a different name than that of the people we bought the house from. Us kids wondered if the old tenant didn't leave the house and was buried back there or something. I would be interested to find out if the people living there now had any counters. Fast forward a number of years. My current home only had one owner, the grandparents of my hubby. We feel perfectly comfortable. No such creepy experiences. But once we were watching TV with a new roommate and joked about ghosts or visits from beyond. Coincidentally, the old place does settle every once in a while, and this time, a mirror popped off the wall and landed face up in the bathroom. It wasn't secured to the wall very well. It's fake glass. The poor guy went to the bathroom and came running out looking terrified. Okay, who did that, he said. We were both sitting there. We laughed, but he did not find it funny at all. My only explanation is that Grandma did not like this guy and was annoyed that we had allowed this guy to move in under the guise of friendship, only to realize that he'd left his wife for another woman. I think she was trying to show him some unwelcome treatment. He lived there for a year and always seemed unhappy and jumpy. One day we came home and he'd moved all of his things out. He came back because he forgot something or we might not have seen him again. I guess we'll have to be more selective in the future if we want to keep a roommate. LOL. Well, thanks for sharing those two experiences, Gina. This next story comes from Giorg, and it's a nightmare premonition. From a very young age on, actually some of the oldest memories I have, I had a recurring nightmare about me being sick. My mom offered me medicine in the dream in the form of a box with three pills inside. I was told to choose a pill with the warning that only one would make the pain go away. 
and I always picked the wrong one. The side effect of the wrong pill were ghosts. Once I made my pick, ghosts would burst out of the box of pills. That part then scared me so much that I always woke up soon after the ghosts appeared, resulting in a sleepless night. Then at around 8 or 9, that dream was replaced by a different one, always about me being sick. This time there was no medicine involved, but simply me being sick intercut with a close-up of a very stressed face. It was very red, veiny, and sweaty, kind of like a fat weightlifter trying to lift way too much weight for too long. So the nightmares had shifted from, no matter what you do, it's going to happen, to you're sick and it's all about the head kind of thing. I had these dreams every once in a while, and the second one, just like the first, became so regular that I recognized it when the dream started, and that made it only more intense and scarier. Yet, I couldn't do anything about it. When I hit puberty, the dream stopped, and the migraine started. The heavy kind of migraine that leaves you puking and nothing can help you, no matter what medicine you take. All you can do is make it as dark and silent as possible and struggle through it. After puberty, the migraine stopped and the nightmares didn't come back. Later on, I came to realize that those nightmares must have been premonitions about my upcoming condition. I'm 35 now and just happy that it's all over. Well, we're glad you're not getting those migraines anymore. I get some really bad headaches and I can't even imagine what migraines must be like. But how interesting that you might have dreamed about what your future was going to be like. Nothing else. Can you imagine if real medicine had the side effect of ghosts? Yikes. Candace wrote one of our flash fiction contest stories. It was the one about the little boy who was in the backyard that told her to dig. She shares with us that that wasn't entirely fiction and some other haunting experiences that she's had. So you have a scary real story to tell us, which I'm assuming is very similar to the fictional one that you wrote. So, oh my gosh. I've got a few. They're not really scary. It's just I've had quite a few encounters. That little boy, actually, like I said, um, I actually just saw him. I was in my bedroom. The house is a real house. It's my parents' home now. And every night the light would come on in the backyard for no reason. And we'd look out and I saw there's, it's a little boy. He had a yellow shirt and he wore overalls and he had a teddy bear. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I'm just seeing things. And I put it off. And then I heard my brother saying the same exact description. I was like, are you serious? There's, there's no way. And I had never talked to anyone else about it. So he, I have to ask, was, did he look like a solid person? Could you see through him? No, he looks solid, like very solid. And then all of a sudden I looked out again and he was gone. So I was like, oh, maybe, you know, just seeing things. Yeah, although yeah. children don't usually just hang out holding a teddy bear by <laughs> themselves. <laughs> so I was like, that's very weird. I, I tried looking up to see if there's like any mm-hmm. background on the land because it's in Lakeside in California. I couldn't get anything yet, but I'm going to have to dig harder. <laughs> well, that was the next question I was going to ask if somebody had died on the property or whatever. I try. I know the person who lived in the home before us, they had someone who passed away, but they did not. They were older. They weren't little, like young. So I don't think it would have been them. No. So I was staying at my grandfather's home for a while. And my mom had told me stories about his place before when she was younger she had gone, to, she was playing with her siblings, hide and seek outside. She had gone inside. She went to the bathroom and left the door open. She heard footsteps coming up the stairs. And so she closed the door and the door swung open. She saw a huge face fly at her, scared the pants off of her. Oh, man. <laughs> and um, while I was staying there, because we had to put my grandfather into a home and I was staying there just so that the house wasn't empty, I slept during the day and... I would hear footsteps 
all throughout like the day, sometimes at night because I sleep at night on the weekends. And I actually woke up once, thought someone came into the house and I was, you know, ready. No one came by. I heard someone walk by this, the door, didn't see anything. And my mother-in-law would actually watch my son while I slept during the day. And she said she'd hear footsteps and she'd expect me to come downstairs. But I was like, I've been asleep the entire time. What are you talking about? Oh, wow. So you both are hearing it. So it's not one of you hallucinating. Yeah, exactly. It's some of those those things where you're like, there's no way that I'm just hearing noises. And it's not even the house. Like, you know, the difference between the house settling Mm -hmm. and the house, you know, footsteps. Yeah, I mean, there's creaks. And then, like you said, there's the creaks that are beneath a footstep. I mean, they're very different sounds. Yeah. And while we were also staying there, my son, he would also, he used to look up into the corner above our bed. And he would kind of just babble and I just, you know, okay, what are you talking? Are you talking to someone? Or he would look specifically at the corner every time, though. That's really interesting, too. We've heard that before with other children, a lot of looking into corners. It makes you wonder why whatever it is has to stay right in that corner. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, and it was right over our bed. So I was like, just just don't hurt us and we'll be good. Don't don't do anything. And there was an attic in that house, too. I was too afraid to go inside. Yeah, I don't think I'd want to go up into a dark, creepy (laughs) attic when you're already seeing things in the light and hearing things in the light. (laughs) Oh, no kidding. Oh, yeah. So do you consider yourself sensitive at all? Or is this just you're a normal person and this has happened to you? I don't think so. Just random things that have happened to me. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Um, And this was all at the same house? One, the child was at my my parents' house in Lakeside, and the other one was at a house in La Mesa. And that was the same house that my mom had seen the face come at her. Wow. So these are two different locations, too. Aren't you lucky? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Most people don't end up living in one haunted location, and you've lived in two. Oh, yeah. I know. I was like, there's no way. But it happens. It's... I mean, it's San Diego, and I know there's a lot of history out here, too. Now, what, were the houses connected in any way, like the same people living in them besides you? My mom, maybe. My grandfather lived in that house since my mom was little. So it's the same house that my mom lived in with her experience, and then my, you know, living with my mom in the mobile home. So that's the only thing I think of is it's my mom, but I don't think that she's really haunted. No, had your grandfather passed away before you had your son? No, he's still alive now. My grandmother, actually, my grandmother passed away, but she passed away in 2000. And we do smell her perfume every now and then. I was wondering if maybe it was a relative that was playing with your son, maybe. That one I think could be possible. I think she's always watching over us because, you know, it's... This, that perfume from that story was true, too. My mom went to there, and where's your perfume from Grandma? And it's like, I haven't seen that perfume in years. Even my mom was smelling her perfume, and then, you know, it's one of those things where it's the distinct, very, very distinct perfume smell that an older woman would wear. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I would tell my mom, too, like, oh, where did you get the perfume? She's like, I don't wear perfume. What are you talking about? I went to the Whaley house that you guys had mentioned before in San Diego. I took my mom on the tour there, and while we were there, I had seen, there was no way it was a possible, like, a light or anything from outside. I had seen something go by one of the mirrors in the room. There's 
no way it was someone else in the house because they have the the way they have the rooms is it's blocked off. You can't get in. You can just see through like a plastic window. Uh-huh. And I also there's a little girl in the house. They said that she clings to mother figures. She grabs your legs, and mm. on my my leg grabbed, and there was no one around. And it was they said that that was most likely her. Got you. Well, yeah, you know, you weren't the only listener that we've had tell us that they've had experiences in that house. When you guys come out, you'll have to, I'll have to take you down there because I will go anytime. Oh, okay. Well, we'll definitely be out there because we love San Diego. And then, of course, it's right near Anaheim. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us, Candace. We greatly appreciate it. Oh, thank you for listening. And this one is from Jim. I was 12, it was Christmas Eve, and I think I either had a hypnagogic event or a spiritual encounter. I was sleeping at my grandparents' house after overhearing a traumatic family event I won't go into here. I cried in bed for two to three hours. Every half hour or so, my mom or dad would come in and check on me. I felt so much grief, all I could do was pray, God help me, God help me. Suddenly, a profound calm spread over me from head to toe. In my mind, I saw a placid alpine lake in front of a snow-capped mountain. Sky and water were both a deep blue. Every one of my tears dropped into it from high above, one at a time. I imagined a voice. Each tear is more precious than diamonds. I have cried each one with you. Then I felt a presence on my bed. I opened my eyes, expecting to see my dad there. Have you ever looked at the sun or a bright light and then looked away and there's a negative imprint still on your retina? This was like that. I saw the hand of a robed person fading away like that retina imprint does. I was completely calm, not afraid at all, comforted in fact, as if it had just been my father standing there. I remember thinking, who is that? Can't be Jesus, no scars. I still don't know what to think. The atheistic, skeptic side of me says hypnagogic, while the believer in me says God, guardian angels, etc. Both sides say miraculous, wonderful. And this one's also from Jim. My dad befriended a demon-oppressed guy. Late 70s, a guy shows up at our church asking the pastor for help. For some reason, the pastor refers him to my dad, a high school shop teacher and coach. I never learned why. The guy claimed that he was being oppressed by demons. Supposedly, this is one step away from possession. So whenever the guy went to church, three invisible beings started punching him and mocking everything the pastor said. The guy had recently left some kind of cult and had been a big-time drug user. I think at this time he had parted ways with acid and shrooms, but occasionally still partook of the bud. My dad befriended the guy. I remember the guy brought his son to our house, and he and my two brothers and I went swimming. The guy would be fine until we started talking about God and or Jesus, and he'd start flinching. Slight at first, and it would get progressively worse. I just figured he was a slightly crazy ex-druggie, but he was nice, never hurt anybody. I wasn't scared of him. Besides, my dad was a big, strong guy. I knew we were safe. What I learned later was that many nights an unfamiliar car would park across the street from us with a stranger just sitting there watching our house. My dad would get phone calls where a screaming voice would threaten our family with unmentionable acts. This was probably the scariest thing about the whole affair, not the supernatural encounter that happened later. Fast forward a couple months, we're at church, Sunday night service, dad is in attendance with the family, me, my two little bros, and mom. Suddenly during the pastor's prayer, my dad nudges me. I open my eyes to see him scowling at me. He makes a stop at motion, I shrug and mouth what? He looks around excitedly and then he lifts up out of his seat, about two feet in the air, and then comes crashing down. 
I whisper, what the heck? And he chuckles, whispers back, tell you later. So here's what he experienced during the prayer. He was praying for guidance about the ex-cult crazy guy. Dad figured that he was just feeding the guy's neurosis about demons, not helping at all, and should probably just stop counseling him. Then he hears three voices start copying what the pastor is praying, but in a mocking voice. He thinks it's me and my brothers. He looks at me, sees it isn't, then looks around the sanctuary for some other hoodlums, a tape recorder, anything, trying to reason it out. Suddenly, the three voices give a final shout as Dad feels a tremendous kick in the butt that lifts him up out of the pew, and then all is silent. Dad thinks God parted the veil, let him know what the guy was experiencing wasn't just in his head, and that Dad was on the right track. I still wonder, psychosomatic, hypnotic suggestion? Either way, the scariest part was the harassment by flesh and blood cultists, not any goofy demon bullies. This is from April. My very first encounter with a ghost was when I was in fourth grade. I was playing hide-and-seek in the house with my sister and friends. We would turn the lights off in the house and everyone would hide. Then the person who was it would go and find everyone. You stayed where you were until you were found or they gave up. Last person found was then it. I was it and was looking around the house. I went into the bathroom and I thought I saw my sister standing on the counter by the sink. I yelled, I found you, Amy. I was excited because I usually couldn't find her. Only she called from the other room. What? No, you didn't. I then looked back into the bathroom and there was no one there anymore. The game was over then because I was a little freaked out and I had to explain to everyone what happened. We never had anything else happen in that house that I know of. This story comes from Kate. Hello, ladies. My name is Caitlin. I've been listening to your podcast the last few days and it got me thinking of some experiences I've had in different locations, which I would love to share with you. I want to let you know, first off, that I'm legally blind at the time of most of these experiences. I had some residual vision at the time, and now I'm completely blind. My first experience I had with ghosts or hauntings is about the time I was four years old. My grandfather died when I was one year old, but he was extremely happy to have me as his grandchild and loved to make me laugh from what my mother told me. One night, I'd walked downstairs from my room with a toy and started making this noise to my toy. My mother asked me where I heard that noise from since my grandfather used to make the same noise at me when he was alive. I immediately told her, Grandpa said it to me. I told him he was with me sitting on the corner of my bed talking to me. When I was seven, a close family friend who was a firefighter died in a fire. After his funeral, I would write letters to him and leave them under my bed, the same corner of my bed where I saw my grandpa. I love history and going to Gettysburg is one of my favorite things to do since I only live a few hours away. One of my favorite spots is Devil's Den where supposedly there was a sacrifice. The rocks and boulders you can climb on are truly awesome, yet scary at the same time. I remember feeling very uneasy standing at the top of the ledge and I'm not sure if it was perhaps the idea of falling off or if it was something else. I'm certainly not afraid of heights. Also in Gettysburg, I would go to the Farnsworth house for some food in the restaurant they are running out there. I would trail my fingers along the building and feel all the bullet holes and have a sense of wonder and anxiety. I would like to sit outside and eat because whenever I would sit inside, I would have this looming anger coming down on me. I decided to do a Ghost of Gettysburg tour of the Farnsworth house in August of 2009. Overall, the experience was great and sort of frightening. We went up the stairs to the attic and every step I took, I felt more and more anxious. We all sat in the attic as the guide began telling us the history of the building. There was a baby in our group that started crying, so the mother left the room and closed the door behind her. All of a sudden, the door flew back open. Mind you, this is August in 98 degree weather without air conditioning and the door was securely closed. After that happened, half of my body got extremely cold and tingly. I felt something cross the left side of my shoulder to the right and up to the front of my neck like wanting to choke me. I acknowledged the presence of whatever it was and it stopped, but the chill didn't go away until I left the attic. I graduated from a university in Pennsylvania called Myceria Cordia. <laughs> I probably butchered that name. 
Apparently this place is haunted as well. I'll have to put this on the list. All four sides of the school are surrounded by cemeteries. <laughs> wow, I feel a little boxed in there. I lived on campus and one night I was sleeping and felt something shaking me awake. I looked around and saw nothing, then felt jumping on my bed. This happened more than once. I thought it was a small child wanting to play, but I just remained calm and it eventually stopped. I visited Eastern State Penitentiary as well and did another tour. It was awesome. I walked into one of the cells and instantly felt dread and something evil there. I didn't hear anything, just felt the sensation of something not wanting me there. The tour guide explained the size of the cells and things like that. They were super small cells, very claustrophobic. It was difficult for me to breathe. Now I live in San Francisco and recently have done a tour of the Hate District. Super cool tour and guide. One of the areas we visited was given the nickname Bloody Sidewalk or something along those lines. And once we arrived and the closer I got to the sidewalk, I felt like I couldn't breathe. I felt panic and anxiety. I also felt like something was watching me from the house right in front of the sidewalk like a little girl. Finally, I'm attending the University of San Francisco where there's also rumors of hauntings. Since from what I've heard, the school is built on cemeteries, which is a great possibility since we know they moved all of the cemeteries in San Francisco. One building in particular I don't like going into is called Lone Mountain. I always feel extremely uneasy once I'm in the building and even parts right outside the building. It just gives me really creepy vibes. Now that I'm completely blind, I can sense vibes from people like if they're sad, not feeling well and things like that. I've always been good with that sort of thing, even when I was able to see, so I'm not sure if being sensitive to those sorts of things leads me to being sensitive towards the haunted areas as well. Sounds like you are pretty sensitive, Kate. Every time you go into these haunted locations, you're feeling something, it would seem. Thanks for sharing those. You might recall that Katie Dunlap joined us to talk about the Low Hotel and the Mothman in Point Pleasant. And while we were talking about that, she shared a haunting experience that she had had. Where we live, I believe, is haunted. And my mom has seen it, and my sister has seen it, and I have seen it. I'm What's sorry, weird did is you that just, he kind of looks like did, my mom's husband. Did you say you've seen a full-bodied apparition? Not a full-bodied apparition, but I've seen glances of him. Wow. And he looks like my mom's husband, except he's got a little more hair. His hair is darker and he's thinner than Matt. My sister has seen him. I've seen him like standing in my doorway to my bedroom. Like I've caught a glimpse of him. He wears glasses and I've always seen him in like a white t-shirt, which is weird because Matt wears white t-shirts a lot too. And if you're downstairs, because my room is directly above the kitchen. And if you're downstairs in the li- in, sitting at the dining room table, you can hear him pacing in my room like crazy. And it's weird because the cat, she doesn't like to come into my bedroom. Now, is that a house that was like in Matt's family at any time? Or is it just a house you all live in now? It's just the house we live in. It used to be one whole house. What's weird about it is that the people that own the house, my grandmother used to work for. She used to upholstery furniture. And it's owned by uh, David Lawson and Larry Lawson. But unfortunately, Larry passed away. And that's who my grandmother worked for. And he passed away a few years ago from brain cancer. And his mom and his aunt used to live here. And if they, there used to be a doorway on the second, up, up here on the second floor in the hallway. And that connected the two townhouses so they could get to each other easily. We don't know who he is. I'd love to know who he is. I'd love to know his name because I feel bad because I'm totally cool with like living with him. Like that's, and that's why I don't like to tempt the spirits. Like I don't want to make anything angry because like I'm cool if you're cool, dude. Like, we can live together, man. We can exist together. We don't have this doesn't have to be a terrible experience. Okay, and this one is from Toby. He says, Okay, since you asked for it. This goes back about twenty five years now, before I left the school system and started working with HBO on the wire. I used to direct shows for a local high school as well as some area dinner theaters. 
I was very close with all my drama kids and used a few in a production of A Christmas Carol that I was directing for one of the dinner theaters. I was particularly close to a guy named Jameson, who was one of my top performers and coincidentally shared my same birthday. He was playing Scrooge's nephew, Fred, and Scrooge as a young man during the Christmas past scenes. The theater extended the run of the show beyond Christmas through New Year's Eve. But the man playing Scrooge would not do the extension, so I ended up having to fill in as Scrooge. Jameson had planned a big New Year's Eve party at his house, mainly filled with theater kids from school, and invited me to go along, and to stay the night following the final performance. We finished the show and rushed across town to his family's house, getting there about 10 minutes before the new year. Now, Jameson and his parents lived in an old two-floor house from the mid to late 1800s. I'd been there several times before when he hosted various events. Once the party had sort of died down and everyone was ready to pack it in for the night, I was given the sofa in the living room and the rest of the crew slept on the floor, mainly in sleeping bags and two neat rolls, like sardines in front of me. Jameson's parents went to their own room upstairs. Jameson and his girlfriend and his two dogs, Dobermans, retired to his room upstairs. I woke up in the middle of the night hearing very steady and deliberate footsteps. I looked out in front of me. The living room was semi-lit from the outdoor flood lamps that were visible through the windows in the adjacent room ahead of me. I counted the bodies, and everyone was there and accounted for, yet I could still hear the footsteps as if someone were about to walk into the room from the kitchen or the aforementioned room with all the windows where the party food had been laid out. I went back to sleep eventually, but woke again about an hour later to the same noise, steady footsteps. In the morning, Jameson's mom was making breakfast and asked me when we were in the kitchen alone together how I had slept. I told her I'd been fine, but that I'd heard these puzzling noises, convinced someone was about to walk into the room or was already walking about in the room. Yet everyone was laying down asleep in front of me. She surprised me by saying, oh, well, the house is haunted. I never heard any mention of this previously. She went on to tell me how someday she'd be there in the kitchen and hear footsteps coming up the stairs to the back porch, that the dogs would get up off the floor and go to the door, but when she'd go to let someone in, nobody would be there. The porch is about three foot by three foot with four stairs leading up to it, not like someone could hide from sight once they go up. She also went on to tell me how one night she and her husband Terry were in bed and were awakened by the sound of a loud crash from downstairs, as though someone had taken a large vase and dashed it to the ground. They went back to sleep, deciding that either Jameson or the dogs had knocked something over. In the morning, they asked Jameson about it as he emerged from his room, only to find the dogs were in his room all night and the noise had woken him up as well. They all went downstairs together to find nothing damaged or out of place at all. His family has since relocated after he moved out on his own, but I still think about that night whenever I'm in the vicinity. Not a wild story with vampires and howling wolves or anything, but still kind of spooky, I think. Tasha sent us some legends from South America. I love hearing about the various myths and legends of other countries and cultures. There are two that have always freaked me out. One told to me by a friend from Colombia, and one told to me by my own great-grandmother. The one told to me by my friend is known as Il Sabon or The Whistler. The legend goes that a father promised his son that he would bring him back a deer from his hunting trip, but he was unable to find anything that day. When he arrived home empty-handed, the son, who was very spoiled, killed his father in a rage and then brought the organs to his mother to be cooked. Yikes! When the mother found out what her son had done, she whipped him, doused his open wounds with pepper, and then set the dog on him. Great family. 
Now his punishment in the afterlife is to roam the countryside for all of eternity carrying a bag of bones, the bones of his father. He said to stop on the doorsteps of local homes during the night to count the bones, and if you hear him counting, and if you don't stop to listen, you will have bad luck and someone in your household may even die. He's called the Whistler because he does whistle. If you're out at night and hear whistling, it might be him, but the real scary part is this. If you hear whistling from close by, he's far away. But if the whistling is coming from far away, he's right next to you. So you better run. It's also said that the whistling can predict death. If it's high-pitched, a woman will die. But if it's low-pitched, then it will be a man. This next one has always been very scary to me. My great-grandmother told it to my cousins and I to get us to behave. Mexico has El Cucho. Spain and Cuba have El Hombre del Saco. He's also known as El Viejo del Saco and is based on a real crime that happened in Spain in 1910. A man named Francisco Ortega was diagnosed with tuberculosis and went to a local healer known as Curandera or Cuandero to find a cure. They told him that he needed to drink the blood of a child and make a salve out of the child's fat and spread it over his chest and then he would be cured. He hired someone to kidnap a child for him and they did. It was a seven-year-old boy. They then slit the boy's throat and he drank his blood while his wife made a salve out of the boy's fat. That's the legend and parents use El Hombre de Saco to get their children to behave. They even use the same lullaby of El Cucho, just change the names. He doesn't eat you, he just takes you away, which I personally think is much worse because who knows what he'll do when he's taken you. It's like when you know you've done something wrong and you start to imagine what your parents are going to do when they find out. There's also a friend of mine from Nicaragua who's told me and my cousin that if you ever go to a rural town and hear a cart going down the street in the middle of the night, don't look out the window. It might be a carriage driven by death and pulled by two skinny oxen, one white and one black, that mean that either someone in the town is going to die or you are because you saw the carriage. The carriage has a name, but I can't quite remember what it is. The worst part of her telling us this myth was that my cousin was about to go on a backpacking trip with a friend through Central America. I think I would have changed my plans. Thanks for sharing those legends. And yeah, that one about the sack man basically is what that means is very scary. We got these stories from Dawn. My mother happens to like a ton of scary and also true crime stuff. So at a library book sale, I stumbled upon a copy of a book that was made into a movie in the 1970s. I won't even say the name because I just don't want to connect with it. But I thought my mom might like it since I saw the movie with her and would never ever watch it again. I brought the book into my home and innocently flipped through it, then stuck it back in the pile of new books. That night I had what is usually called sleep paralysis. I woke up to feeling held down. I was on my side and couldn't move. I could hear a fast whispering in my ear, as if it were inside my head. I tried to say help to my boyfriend who was right there next to me, but even with repeated attempts to yell, could not do more than mumble. Once it ended, I again had control over my own movements and speech. I woke him up and directed him to please take the book out of the house first thing in the morning. I said I didn't even want to know where it went, just get rid of it. He did, and it never happened like that again. And when she says it didn't happen like that again, it doesn't mean that it never happened again. A few years later, it did, this time without the scariness of the paralysis. The second time, it was more like being on a party line with a bunch of people talking and catching a particular voice here and there, but not feeling as if I were involved directly. In fact, with this one, I just felt annoyed that I was being kept awake. (laughs) You gotta love that. Could you guys uh, shut up who are talking in the afterlife? You're keeping me awake. The third time it happened. Okay, that's too many. It sounded like an okay guy with a British accent. I rolled over and went back to sleep. 
These last two happened this year, further in time from the first incident. She has her grandmother's ashes in her apartment, and she's always looked at them as a type of protection. So she says, I think my dead grandmother is sleeping on the job. There are other little incidents, including one where we lived in a home where my mom had to call the Warrens to come check it out. But I'd like to go on to the nice one now. (laughs) If she had to call in the Warrens, I know they were big on the demons. So, uh, yeah, it doesn't sound good. When I was seven, I was having a friend sleepover. There was a thunderstorm in the night that woke me up. That's when I saw the silhouette of a shadow walking along the wall from the tip of the bed to the foot. My impression has always been that it was a boy. I judged by the cherub-like short-haired curls in the shadow, and it was a child. I closed my eyes and then reopened them. He was no longer on the wall. However, he was standing a couple inches off the bottom of my bed facing me with wings. He was not motionless. His wings were slowly moving, as if to keep balance in the air. He was staring in my direction, but I couldn't see his face. I could tell he wasn't harmful either, but despite that, I was seven and scared. So I closed my eyes again, and this time, he disappeared. I'm almost 47 now, and I've never had another experience like it. I also never figured out the significance of the visit, but I'm sure there's much behind the scenes that I'll just never know anyway. She wanted to tell on her mother. They went to an ancient burying ground a few years ago, and her mother tempted the spirits. She invited any of the spirits to go home with her. Immediately, her husband and I started yelling, no, 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 she's just kidding. And then she told us that we need to start making Don't Tempt the Spirit shirts, which I will get up in the Emporium. Thanks for sending those, Dawn. Matt is an awesome artist. He is the one who designed the Haunted Mansion picture that features both Denise and I. And he joined us to share a very weird and unexplained experience. After you hear this one, you'll be wondering, was that a ghost? Was it a time traveler? Was it an alien? What was that? I have a particular story that really stands out the most, aside from the uh, picture that I posted on there from my trip to St. Augustine, which is just an incredible city. And I always feel like whenever I go in there, I just have this eerie vibe just as soon as I'm driving up. I'm like, this is it. This is probably the freakiest little city that I've ever gone into because it has so much history. But aside from that, the one that stands out, the story is more about questioning why I'm interested in ghosts and more so wanting actual proof. Stuff has happened in the past that's that's always gotten me interested. I mean, my mom has had an experience growing up in a house where she watched her brother's model plane move across a dresser. In that same house, my grandfather heard noises upstairs knowing that the family was gone and it just sounded like furniture was being moved across upstairs. And he would go up several times and nothing, nothing was there. One particular thing that kind of stood out from my childhood was I brought a book home. This is when I was living in Florida, and I brought this book home from the library. And I was always interested in like the Titanic, and it always just kind of mesmerized me. But then I also started, for some reason, kind of getting into ghost stuff. I brought this book home, and it had an image of a ghost on it, like a monk almost, that was like walking out of an abbey, and it had a hood over its head. Well, it was enough of an image to freak my dad out that he he shouted at me. He said, where did you get this? I said, I got it at the library. You take it back first thing tomorrow. I'm just like, okay, well, what's wrong? I asked my mom and she said, well, dad had an experience at our old house where he woke up in the middle of the night, could not move. And there was a hooded figure just standing next to his bed on his side. And he watched this figure look at him and then turn and just walk down the hallway. And that was it. I think that actually just kind of fueled my fire even more to get interested in this kind of stuff. 
And I, funny enough, I found that book on eBay. So I'm questioning whether or not to, uh, to get that one. <laughs> when you're talking about the house, was this a house that you lived in as a family? Or was this a house he lived in when he was a kid? This was a house. I was actually a, uh, a baby, I think, at this time. This is when we we're living back in Indiana. We found out later that there was a young boy that was actually killed by a school bus. And we think that was it, the mm. resident of the house. If the information that we had today was around back then, I'm sure the first thing that they would say is it was sleep paralysis. I mean, he said that he couldn't move, so it could have been. But I'm kind of hesitant to get into believing what today's popular culture is is stating as fact, because it's it, today's trend is sleep paralysis and the gin, which I shouldn't mention to you. <laughs> <laughs> the gin, because they're responsible for everything. Well, by the time this airs, everybody will know that we did an episode on it. So aside from that, where it really started affecting me was as a little kid, again, now I'm living in Florida, and I, I remember leaving my bedroom and walking across to get a drink of water, and I was probably about seven or so, and we had our sunroom out in the back, and I could see what looked like my grandmother sitting in a chair, and... I asked my mom and dad the next day, I said, you know, where's grandma? I I saw her last night. I'm like, grandma's back in Indiana. She's not here. But it's little stuff like that that just sticks in my head that I can't forget. I can't shake it. And it reminds me of listening to uh, Patrick Keller recently. And he had mentioned how he goes back and he thinks about stuff that's happened in his past. And I was just so excited because I'm like, yes, I do that too. There's little things where I just want to find out. And it's always going to be a mystery. You're never going to have that answer to help you out there. But one thing that did happen to me, just kind of getting to the the actual story, was I'm living in Bradenton, Florida. And it was the middle of my junior year. And my family decided to move back to Florida. So I had left from Indiana, had to come down here. I had no friends. While I was still right before school had started, I was on the phone with my friend up in Indiana, just touching base with him. And all of a sudden, I heard a uh, I heard a ringing at the door. So I said, hang on a second. I, I want to go answer this. So I opened the door. We had a glass door in between. And there was this woman that kind of dressed somewhat uh, hippie-ish, had long, red, curly hair. And she just had this blank expression on her face. And so I I opened up the the glass door and I said, yes, is there anything I can help you with? And she just stood there. She had this long pause. It was super awkward. And she says, may I please use your phone? And I said, well, I I can't have you in. I'm by myself right now. And inside my head, I'm just thinking this is a really weird woman. She just, something didn't feel right. So I said, you know what? Let me go get the cordless. That's something that we actually had back then was these phones that weren't cell phones. Mm-hmm. I said, uh, let me let me go grab that really quick. And I came back to her. I opened the door and I said, here you go. So she takes the phone from my hand and she's about five feet from me now. And she just puts the phone up to her head and then brings it back down, stares at it. She pushes like it only looks like two buttons. And then she just stares at it some more and then hits the the end button and then just slowly hands it back to me. So I just go, okay, well, thank you. Have a good day. And then she interrupts and she says, 
may I please have a drink of water? I said, well, again, uh, if you just want to wait right here, I guess I can do that. So I went back inside, brought the glass out and just handed it to her. And she just stared at it once again and then slowly sipped it, put it down and then handed it back and just said, thank you. She turns to walk away. I call my friend up so fast because I'm just so disturbed by this. As soon as I do that and he gets on the phone, I look out the big picture window and I can see her standing in the middle of the road, just staring down the road. As soon as I went back to my room, which was facing the same road, I'm telling my friend all this stuff. I'm like, I'm really freaked out. This woman is really scary. So I open the blinds and there is nobody. I cannot understand what happened there. It felt like I was talking to just a normal person, you and I, but what happened to her? For me to take that time, which was only seconds, to go to the next window and find that she had disappeared. And I can't wrap my head around that. And it's always bothered me. And that's, I think, why this stuff is fun. It's mysterious, but I want to know the truth. And for me to, you know, you watch all these shows that are on TV, it's interesting, it's mystery, but I want the proof. And you can't fall for all of TV's antics that they have on there. I think that stuff with orbs has become something that is just so popular only because of television. Mm-hmm. There's not enough proof in there for me to be able to document it and say, yes, this is clearly that evidence. But also, I think people need to take it a little bit more seriously because there are people on the other side. At least I want to believe that. And if so, wouldn't it be great to have that clarification that there is another world out there, that there is a way to know that we have loved ones that are safe and they are giving us great messages and orbs just aren't going to do that. So, yeah, I think that red hair woman just really creeped me out. And again, I I can picture her in my head and I'm never going to lose that. Well, and I think your brain works very similar to ours, where we're these open-minded skeptics. So this thing has happened, and you probably have found yourself over the years questioning it. Did did that really happen? Was she really there? But you're like, we had this physical interaction. This is amazing to listen to you, because who knows what this was? That's one thing we'll never be able to answer. Was it an angel, a demon, just some kind of weird anomaly, some kind of time thing? Was she a ghost? Was she just a strange person that could appear and disappear? Or we don't know. But it was very physical with you. I mean, it was she was... Very physical. It took the objects, yeah. And, and wow. attempted to at least drink. And she was able to push the buttons on the phone. It's interesting for you to say that. Because even if she was just, say, a strange woman who maybe went somewhere that you couldn't see her in the blink of an eye somehow, which seems unusual because it sounded like she was moving very slowly and just standing in the middle of the street. So even to have a car pick her up, it would have taken more time than it took for you to get to the window. She didn't understand how to use the phone, which is just bizarre. Well, the other thing, you know, when, you know, I'm taking this so seriously as to trying to understand it. And I, I talked to my parents about that. In fact, when I found out that I was going to be doing this um, on the podcast, I, I called my mom up and I said, do you remember when I told you about this occasion? She says, oh, yeah, I sure do. You were terrified. I said, right. So I try to put in the things that factor into it. Number one, if this is something spiritual, maybe it has something to do with stress. Maybe it's the fact that I just moved down middle of my junior year and that could be playing with my head. 
you know, maybe people when they go through stressful situations, they're a little bit more vulnerable. And then also you got to think that there was a hospital that wasn't too far away. You know, was this somebody from a psych ward? Mm-hmm. And I asked my mother about that. She was a nurse there, there in Bradenton. And she said, well, there wasn't really a psych ward, but there were, you know, you're going to get those people. And then the other factor that I have to think about is my father died less than a year later. And I just, I have to take all that stuff into consideration to help understand it. But regardless, I'm always going to question it. I'm never going to have the answer that I want. Because that's the thing that we don't understand either. If these really are ghosts, we wonder, are you aware that you're dead? I mean, that's one thing you'll see on these shows. They're asking them, do you know you're dead? And I'm like, God, if you were stuck in some place and you've been asked a hundred times, do you know you're dead? You just want to hit somebody, you know? But it's like, do they know? And obviously she seemed not aware. And whatever she was, she was not aware of what was going on between you. But she was still able to communicate with you and ask for certain things. So, you know, it's not some residual thing. Like if she was some woman who was hit by a car, say right there on that location. Well, the other thing is too, is thinking of all the stories that I've heard of that have had uh, people saying that they've been to, let's say either historical locations or if they're on the Queen Mary and they see somebody that's dressed in those, those clothing and they always say that it was so vivid and they end up, they always end up asking the person later, who was the reenactor that you had there? Mm -hmm. Well, there was no reenactor, which I think is great because when I hear those, I'm thinking it must've looked so real to you. It must've been a physical person that you couldn't see through to make you think that. And that's what kind of validates my story Mm -hmm. and thinking that there are ghosts that can appear and to be a solid form. And what's unusual about yours is that it's, in more of a current type of era. I mean, the 60s or the 70s is still kind of in the past for some people, not so much for us. But, you know, that's more recent than what you hear a lot of. You hear a lot of Victorian era or 20s, 30s, 40s. But you don't hear a lot of our more recent time period. So it's even more interesting that you had something. Well, the thing that's weird to me about it is how quickly she disappeared to where she's there, really nowhere to hide or disappear to. And then within seconds, she's gone. That's always I mean, that's even weirder than all of the other stuff. Yeah, and, and the uh, other weird thing that's been happening, too, just throwing my wife, she is pregnant, and she's actually due in about two and a half weeks. And she has been having experiences where she's seeing a shadow figure. And we haven't had really a whole lot of stuff except peripheral vision, uh, just seeing little lights or um, possible shadow. But she has been telling me that she's been waking up and she has seen a shadow figure move from the window out to the door. So almost somewhat like the same experience that my dad had. And she she told me about this the next day. And I said, why did you not wake me up? She said, you had to get up early. I didn't want to bother you. I said, I break for ghost. I'll do this. <laughs> <laughs> By the time that we have our next kid, she's going to do that. I'm going to have my camera up and ready and pick it up and just start flashing away. And she's going to say, no, I need you to go take care of the baby. <laughs> does it feel threatening to her? or Not at all. Okay. Not at all. I've had a few things where I've, I've seen just little wisps. But that's the funny thing, too, is that she's saying that she's having this experience. And I was kind of reluctant to even say that here on the show because for somebody that's interested in ghosts, maybe some of them actually overreact or they just first thing they do is tend to believe that it is a ghost. Mm -hmm. 
but I took her through. I mean, I, I showed her, I put her in the exact spot that she's saying that she's seeing stuff. Uh, she saw him in the, in the dining room. And I said, well, that's the Darth Vader I have in the studio that you're seeing. And she said, no, no, I, it was right here about five feet in front of me. So it's happened about three times with her. And I just don't want people like, if I say that I saw a ghost, they're going to say, yeah, but you like ghost stories. Mm-hmm. I do. It's true. But I want to believe in them. So a lot of crazy things. Has she lost anybody like close to her that might just be since she is getting ready to have a baby? Well, that's what that's funny that you said that, because we that's the first thing that we actually thought of is that my uh, my father, like I said, mm-hmm. he died back in 99 and he was my best friend. I love him to death. And kind of wondering if maybe he's popping in just to see how things are going. I always have vivid dreams about him where we kind of we catch up. And then for her, it would be both of her grandmothers who recently passed away, too. Okay. So that would be it. Well, I immediately was thinking your father when you were talking about that. I was like, well, he did mention that his father passed away mm-hmm. more recently. And that would be something he would definitely be interested in is his grandbabies. Yeah. And, you know, to have a thought like that is definitely very, very nice to have. Boy, wouldn't that be a great thing mm-hmm. to know that they were checking in. Well, those are Amazing stories. Thank you for sharing those, Matt. This next one is from Amy. My ghost was an Irish descendant from County Clare with the prettiest baby blue eyes you can imagine. You'll want to remember this information. When his family came to America, it was a time when being Irish wasn't something you wanted to shout about, so they changed their surname from Kirkpatrick to Patrick. He was known to his friends as Pat, but I called him Frampa. I hope you'll forgive the lengthiness, but a condensed version would have been a disservice to my grandpa. Yes, he is my ghost. My grandparents lived with us since before I was born, and I was very close to my grandmother. When she died, I think I gravitated toward him because maybe subconsciously I felt he needed me as much as I needed him. I wasn't in school yet, so he became my best friend. Something else might have connected us too. I am the only daughter of his only daughter, and I'm the youngest child of his youngest child, making me the seventh grandchild. Isn't seven supposed to be the most powerfully magical number? Not long after my grandmother's death, we moved to a small town west of Fort Worth, Texas, with Grandpa in tow. As a nightly ritual, I would go cuddle up with my grandpa and watch TV with him in his room, always managing to fall asleep. Grandpa was only in his early 60s, so I'm sure he could have carried me to my bedroom, but never did. The first summer after I moved to this house, my brother and I had to go over to my other grandparents' house in Corpus Christi for a two-week visit. As I was leaving, Grandpa whispered to me, Grandpa's just going to die without you. That was the last time I saw him alive. Since I always slept with my grandpa, I believe that God waited for me to leave town before taking him, because my grandpa died in his sleep. It wasn't long after his death that we moved out of our house. Too many memories for my mom. We moved to a house not far from there, so we were still in the same school bus route. A new family had moved into the house, and my brother got to know the boy who lived there. My brother told him that it used to be our house, but didn't tell him about our grandfather. The boy told my brother that there was something creepy about the house, and he felt like he was always being watched. My brother just laughed a little and told them it was probably our grandpa and left it at that. As the years went by, we moved several more times, but my mom always drove by the house on our way home from work. One day she saw a for rent sign up and called the number. The same people who owned it before still owned it and told my mom that nobody ever stayed there very long, much like we never stayed at a house for very long. 
The owner told my mom that it felt like the house was waiting for our family to return and he'd like for us to buy the house rather than rent. So my parents bought the house and we moved back the year I started the seventh grade. When my brother and I were choosing our bedrooms, I immediately chose the one that belonged to my grandpa because it felt like the safest room in the house. There were times I felt watched, but I never got scared and I was given my privacy when I needed it. The first sign that we weren't alone in the house was the flickering lights. Our kitchen light had a dimmer and it would dim and brighten of its own accord. We'd laugh and say hi to grandpa. The light activity would then stop. My parents had a water bed and one night my mom felt the bed move as if someone were getting in. She asked my dad what he was doing home, but he didn't answer. It was late and dark, so she went back to sleep. My dad was a third shift police officer and he didn't come home until the next morning. When I was in junior high and my brother was in high school, I was charged with staying up at night waiting for him to make his curfew. There was a wall that separated the kitchen from the living room. I heard the water running in the kitchen sink and then shut off. I went to investigate and noticed that the faucet was dripping as if someone had just turned it off, but not all the way. There was nobody in the house but me and my mom, and she was asleep. Like Denise's mom, I am also a doll collector. I collect Madame Alexander dolls, and I had them sitting on the shelf that was attached to my dresser in my bedroom. I was a teenager by this time and having an argument with my mom in my bedroom. Four of my dolls came off the shelf and hit the floor without hitting the dresser. These dolls had stands secured to them. Another argument with my mother, teenage girls, happened in our living room. We had a clock that hung above the mantel. During the argument, the clock came off the wall and landed face down on the floor. The clock cleared the mantel and the hearth. Incidentally, that clock hasn't told the correct time since then, and neither has the grandfather clock. A few years went by, and I started seeing a boy who's now my husband. He lived in another town, so he stayed late, and my mom would allow him to sleep on the sofa. I hadn't told him the stories about my grandpa because of his fear of the supernatural. He is of Mexican and Apache descent, so his beliefs are pretty much imbued in his blood. I didn't want to scare him. I didn't think I'd ever have to tell him until he started complaining that it felt like someone was pulling his hair while he slept. We joked about it being Grandpa having a laugh. Well, we thought it was a joke until one night my mom and I were watching a TV show about hauntings, and one of the experts said that the spirits will sometimes play practical jokes like pulling hair. When I was looking for a job, I saw an ad in a newspaper for a customer service rep. I sent in my sad little resume, knowing there wasn't a chance. When I told my mom what company I'd sent my resume to, she said that my grandpa had worked there when he was young. I was in complete shock when I was called in for an interview. The gentleman said that there were over 100 applicants and they could hire only three people. He held up my very wrinkled and crumpled resume and explained that he'd read a few from the other prospects that had so much more experience than me, but he kept going back to mine. He'd set it aside and read a few more before picking mine up again. He said he really didn't know what it was about me because I was completely unqualified for the job, but he wanted to meet me. I worked there for 13 years, yes, 13, before moving on to a major corporation that doubled my salary. I don't have a college degree, but I got my dream job thanks to those 13 years of experience from a job that I never should have gotten from the company that employed my grandfather when he was in his 20s. My husband and I were having a house renovated, so we had to live with my parents for a little while. We were about a week from moving out when our first child was born a month early. We set up a crib for her in my old bedroom, my original bedroom, because it was the closest to the living room. The far wall that could be seen from the living room was a wall full of mirrors. The crib was in the corner next to the mirrors. My dad walked by and saw a reflection in the mirror of someone standing over my daughter's crib, just watching her. 
My mother walked into the living room from the opposite direction, and my dad asked if she'd just been in the baby's room. My mother told him no, that she didn't want to wake her. My dad just stared at her and said, well, if it wasn't you, it must have been your daddy checking in on his great-grandbaby. My dad never believed in ghost grandpa until that moment. A few years later, our little family that now included two daughters were spending the night at my parents' house because we were going to Disney World and we had an early flight. My brother's old bedroom was now the guest room and the four of us were piled on the double bed like sardines. We were so tightly squeezed that my five-year-old daughter was half laying on my husband who was on the outside of the bed. Our youngest, about two, was being whiny and fidgety and my husband got onto her and told her to hush and go to sleep. About 30 seconds later, the ceiling fan fell from the ceiling. My oldest daughter was practically draped over him, exposing only the area under his right knee, which is the only place on him that the fan hit before it flipped over and landed upside down on the floor. We were stunned into complete silence. Then I said, you shouldn't have yelled at his great-grandbaby. At that point, my husband got up, grabbed his stuff, and said he was going home and he'd see us in the morning because he wasn't staying in that house. The same ceiling fan was completely intact, and they were able to reattach it. A few years after that incident, my parents had black mold in their house, and it had to basically be completely gutted and rebuilt. When they moved back in, it wasn't the same. Grandpa was gone. The lights didn't flicker or dim or brighten on their own. The mirrors that showed his reflection have been replaced by a painted mural, and my husband hasn't had his hair pulled in years. Although I miss the reassurance and love that his presence provided us, I'm happy to know that my grandpa is finally at rest, believing his work here is done. However, a couple of years ago, I was driving home from work, listening to the radio, which was unusual for me because I listened to audiobooks and now HGB on my drive home. Anyway, the radio DJ was talking about old sitcoms, and I could hear the theme song for Sanford and Son playing in the background. There's a photo of me and Grandpa on the recliner watching that show because it was our favorite. As that photo flashed through my mind, my torso and chest physically moved forward and I felt the sensation of someone pushing the back of my seat, someone who wanted me to know that he was thinking about me too. Both of my daughters have Irish middle names to pay respect to my ancestry, but it's my second born who is now 17 and looks like she came straight from the Emerald Island that holds the middle name of Erin. As you know, Erin is another name for Ireland. The description I told you to remember... Although blue eyes are still common in our family, the only descendant of my grandfather that has his exact shade of blue eyes is his Mexican great-granddaughter, my youngest daughter who brought on the wrath of a ceiling fan. I guess you could say that old Pat's Irish eyes are still smiling. In case you're wondering, her sister's eyes are dark brown, exactly like my husband's deceased grandfather. We got these from Ellen. I'm not sure if you can use this story for your show or not, but I would like to tell you about the wonderful life and afterlife of a most wonderful woman, my mother, Barbara. Too many odd and strange things and coincidences happen in her life and now in her daughter's lives to be just coincidences. My mother's family were non-practicing Catholics, but my mother gained her deep faith due to the many signs of the evidence of God that she had in her life. Mom was born in 1945. She was the second oldest of nine living children. A year before she was born, Grandma was in her second trimester and saved her toddler from a fall down a set of stairs and ended up falling down the steps herself. Later that night, little Marianne was born and lived only four hours. The family never really talked about her and my mother grew up only knowing the name of the cemetery in which she was buried. She never had a stone and the family never visited. It was probably a combination of not having a lot of money and Grandma and Grandpa's way of coping with this loss. 
I was out of college when I got my grandmother to finally tell me the story about her fall down the steps. Grandpa once told his youngest daughter when she was an adult how he carried her little coffin from the hearse to the grave site. Mom was born with an atrial septal defect, a hole in the heart. This was exacerbated when she was five and developed polio and rheumatic fever and meningitis all around the same time. Oh my gosh. In her teens, she went into cardiac arrest during an appendectomy. She had a classic near-death experience with this. Because of the cardiac arrest, she was sent to the University of Michigan Hospital for an evaluation. She and her parents were told that she would not live to be 40 and that she should never have children because her heart would not be able to handle pregnancy. As any typical teen, she didn't think much about this, as age 40 was a long time in the future. She didn't think of this until the night before her wedding. She could not sleep as she was wondering if she was being fair to my father. Was she going to deny him the chance to have children, or would she die a young mother, leaving him all alone to raise a child? Then she had a Marian vision. Mom always said that it was very real, and at the instant that the Virgin Mary appeared, my mother immediately knew that everything was going to be okay. The morning of her wedding, it was raining. As she and her father... As she and her father walked up the steps of the church, the rain stopped. Both looked back and saw a rainbow. I was born 18 months later on December 8th, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. This coincidence only intensified Mom's lifelong devotion to the Virgin Mary. Three and a half years later, my sister was born. There were some complications with the birth, but luckily Amy grew up healthy and normal. Well, I often joke that she was really not normal. My parents decided that two girls were enough for them. One of my aunts died in her 40s from end-stage renal disease. She and her husband had very little money. She told everyone that she wanted to be cremated and buried on grandmother's grave. At least one other family member had the cremains interred in a family member's grave. However, the cemetery where my grandparents are buried does not allow that. One of my other aunts asked about the cemetery where Marianne was buried. This cemetery does allow for cremains to be interred in an existing grave. When my mother went to the cemetery office to find Marianne's grave, she and the family were shocked to find out that both sisters died on April 20th, one in 1944 and one in 1996. Our family finally put up a stone for Marianne. There is now a stone that says sisters with both names on it. My mother and I always believed that Marianne was waiting to be remembered. Mom did live past 40, past 50, and even past 60. However, in the last few years of her life, her health was failing fast. One time, a healthcare worker asked her what her goal was. I still cry thinking about it. She said that she wanted to live to see her three grandsons grow up. At the same time that she said it, I knew that this would never happen. Dad had his own health problems and died shortly after my mother. My sister and I both had strange experiences while cleaning the house up and getting it ready for sale. I was locked out of the house when I was alone and had to get the neighbor to help me break back in. Amy was cleaning up and heard her three-year-old offer a chip to someone that was not there. My mother and I were very close and both shared a love of genealogy. I took home our family photo albums, her genealogy stuff, and the framed pictures that were on the wall. At the time, I could not emotionally go through these and put them in a big plastic bin in the basement. Every so often, I'd look for the albums but could not find them. I would see the genealogy stuff in the framed pictures but no albums. When my dad's stepmother moved into an assisted living, I took home some of her old pictures, her baby book, etc., and put them on top of the frame pictures and genealogy stuff. My son was preparing for his first Holy Communion. This is a very important time in a Catholic family's life. As parents, we were supposed to show him pictures of our first communion. I thought about the missing albums and remembered that one of the frame pictures was a 70s photo collage. I knew that one of the pictures in that collage was of my first communion. I went down to the bin. There, on top of my grandmother's pictures and baby book, were the missing photo albums and a loose picture of my first communion and another of my sister's. It's almost like somebody had pulled them out for her, huh? Oh my gosh. As we stayed behind after communion for pictures, Amy went ahead to start to host the first communion party. I walked into the party and beside the cake, I saw that she had put up a framed picture of my parents. I was so touched and thanked her for bringing it. 
She then said that she didn't bring it. Months before, she'd bought a cheap frame at the dollar store, framed the picture, and put it up by the visor of the truck, intending to put it on the grave when she went out there next. She forgot all about the picture until her husband parked the car at the party and it fell into his lap. My mother made sure that one way or another, she's going to be there for her grandson's special day. Amy and I both have had someone get into our cars at times. No one is there, but we both have a sensation that someone is in the back seat. At these times, something is happening in our lives that we need extra support. A few years after the first communion, something else happened. I worked as a healthcare professional in home health. At that time, I worked primarily in an area about 30 minutes north from my house. On this particular day, I was asked to see someone in my hometown, which is about an hour north from my house. I said sure, but first I would go to have lunch with my parents. My dark humor means that I would visit the grave, eat lunch in my car, make calls, answer emails, etc. After I was done with this, I got out of my car to say one more prayer. I heard, Hi Auntie Ellen. It was my nephew, the one that was giving a chip to one of my parents. My sister had the day off and decided to just go bumming and drove 30 minutes south of her house. We both ended up at the grave at the same time. Neither of us had told the other. I live an hour south of the grave. She lives 30 minutes north. And then uh, she sent us a selfie from that day. I miss my mother, but I know that she's around and that one day we will be together again. Until then, I just enjoy this life that I've been blessed to be given and I love the family that I've been given. Richard joined us to talk about the St. James Hotel and he mentioned on an aside that he had grown up in a haunted house. So we had to find out more about that. You mentioned that you grew up in a haunted house, is that correct? Oh yeah, yeah I did. So where 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 did you live when you lived in that house? I lived in uh, Parsons, Kansas. It's uh, southeast Kansas, a town in southeast Kansas, um, railroad town. Was this an old house that you lived in? Uh, Pretty old, yeah. I think it was, I I think, uh, I think the land, like we looked at the deeds for the place, trying to find out history about the place. And I think what might have happened, there might have been a really older home there at one time that had burned to the ground. And so somebody had built on top of that, sort of, um, because there was another foundation underneath the house, too, where you could tell another house had been there. So it might not have been, you know, I I don't know exactly. I think it was built, the newer one was built maybe in the 40s or something. So what kind of stuff happened to you? When I was a kid, when I first moved there, and it was, you know, it was actually my whole family that had different experiences, too, but the first thing I remember when we moved there is that um, as you uh, as you walked in, you know, as you're a kid, I think, I think sometimes children are more sensitive to things. Mm-hmm. You know, we were upstairs, and uh, my brother and I we were trying to figure out, you know, where things go, and we had this room, and, and um, I remember going in the room and thinking, wow, like, there's someone else in here, because you felt like you were on stage, kind of, like somebody was watching you. At the time, I was... Six, I think seven. Yeah, so, you know, and I'd never really had that feeling at other places we had been. And um, I remember uh, leaving a, a toy upstairs, wanting to go back up and get it, but I was too scared. And my dad asked him, like, well, I, you know, you need to go get that. And, and I said, oh, I don't want to go up there. There's, there's people up there. And he just, he, at the time, was like, what? You know, and he, he went ahead and got it for me, and he, he just, I think he thought, oh, you know, it's just a kid, you know, it has an overactive imagination. <laughs> it wasn't too long until the whole family, and it, it pretty much happened to my brother and I. We had a lot of different things that were happening, like, at first, it was happening to just us. Um, you know, you'd hear footsteps, you'd hear, like, uh, voices. Like, I saw, like, uh, kind of like these little, uh, one night I woke up, I saw kind of like this impish creature at the bottom of the bed, kind of like... You know, you know those old uh, fairy tales where you, or like the stories of the creature at the foot of the bed, you know, that they, with kids, that they... Yes. It, it was almost like that. It was like this kind of impish creature. 
which is pretty terrifying. <laughs> How tall was it, Richard? Oh, it was probably, well, it was enough that its head was above the bed, so it was kind of standing at the foot of the bed, and its head was like looking over the bed, so it probably had to be, you know, I'm thinking of maybe three and a half feet tall. And I didn't see it real, I just saw its eyes that were kind of glowing. So that was a pretty, you know, like a frightening kind of, um, that was pretty frightening, but... Yeah, pretty frightening, I would say. (laughs) That was a little bit pretty frightening. I'd be terrified. I'd be wet in my pants. Yeah. (laughs) uh, uh, But you know what happens, though, and I hate to, it sounds weird, but so many things were to happen that you sort of like kind of get used to it a little bit. Sure. And you, and you know, and people would just say, oh, well, how come you guys didn't move and stuff, you know, And, and it's just really because, you know, we were pretty poor, so it was really... No cost, uh, just not, this is not going to happen for us to be able to move because my parents had put everything in this house. And mm-hmm. But my brother, you know, he would hear like voices quite a bit talking and from the closets and stuff like that. You know, you'd be downstairs, you'd hear someone walking around upstairs. They seemed to really like our room was like a big deal, like they loved our room where they, that's where they hung out or something. And there were, there were more than, it was almost like there were more than one spirit. There were actually a, a little uh, cast of different spirits there. When you said they, I had a feeling you were talking about multiple. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. That would be terrifying. <laughs> Well, one of the really weird experiences I had, and this is, I was about 10 years old, and I had this uh, kind of terrifying dream, and I woke up, of course, it's one of those dreams where you sit up in bed, and you just sort of rub your eyes, and you think, wow, what was that, you know, and you're just frightened, and um, and it was sort of a dream about, like, this witch-like sort of uh, thing that was sort of chasing me, and so I woke up, and I uh, looked up in my doorway to my room, and there was, like, this little, uh, sort of like a replica of me standing there. And it was transparent. And so I, I remember trying to wake up my brother because we actually shared a bed and uh, he wouldn't wake up. And so um, kind of, uh, you know, I just sort of stared and I didn't quite know what to do. And then the, the, the thing, the little whatever it is, kind of got close to my bed. It uh, reached, it looked at me, looked down at me and it was standing by the bed. So it looked over to me and then it sort of reached out and it had this uh, package in its hand. And this, it was like a white, or like a, it was a black kind of package, but it had a white, like, a ribbon sort of almost around it or something, holding it together. So it almost looked like a scroll or something. And it tried to get me to take it. And, of course, you know, there was no way I was taking it. Mm-hmm. I don't blame <laughs> I you. I put my head under the, you know, I pulled the covers up and just tried to, like, hope it, it leave. And, of course... You know, I fell asleep eventually. I just never looked out, and I was too scared to run away from the bed or what to do. It was gone, you know, of course, in the morning. But So you said that this looked like you? Yeah, it looked like me, yeah. So it was like a doppelganger. Yeah, it was like a doppelganger. Yeah, I've, I've read about that, too, yeah. Wow, that is interesting. Yeah, that's... <laughs> It was very strange. So in my, in my brother, you know, he, he, uh, he had an instance where he woke up and he saw the room on fire. Like the room, it felt like there was a, a fire going on. And what was really interesting about that is we had actually found like these burnt toys underneath the house. So one of the things that's interesting about that uh, house, and now they just tore it down. I've heard, I uh, found out the other day. My brother, he actually, he still lived the town we uh, grew up in, and he was working at a place. And just on the spur, 
he was having lunch with a guy, and they were just kind of comparing different places they had lived around town or in the area. He said, uh, the guy started saying, like, oh, well, I lived on, you know, the street's name is Crawford. And he said, I lived on Crawford for a while. My brother said, oh, really? And the, and the guy said the address. And my brother said, well, I lived there, too. And, and the guy just immediately shot to my brother, and he said, did anything weird ever happen to you there? And he said, what do you mean? And he said, I mean stuff, you know, he said, stuff you can't explain. He said, my family still calls that the creepy house. And so they had lived there about 10 years before we actually lived there. You know, and we lived there for like 20 years because we bought the house. But they had just rented the house. And he said that this guy was telling my brother that he said that when he came into the place, when his family was there looking at it to see if they wanted to rent it, the older there was an older man living next door who, by the time we had lived there, had passed away. And only his wife was there. And But he was there, and he said, are you guys thinking about renting that place? And they said, yeah. And he said, you know, he goes, I don't know if that's a great idea. He said, that house is weird. He said, a lot of people have come and gone from there. And he said, there was an accident in the basement, and someone got um, killed. Now, I never found out, you know, I could not ever verify that. Mm-hmm. But there was something, there was a lot of strange stuff. And, you know, my dad, he heard, uh, who's, who's passed too, but he, he heard a... Uh, uh, something scratching at the basement door, trying to get out of the basement door, and he would go open the door up and there'd be nothing there. You know, my dad used to hear someone, they would walk down the stairway if he was late at night. He'd get up or something and he would um, hear someone walking around the house and he would think, oh, it's somebody, you know, it's the it's one of us, one of the, his, the sons, you know, one of the, we were up, uh, me and my brother, like getting something, and he would, Ask, you know, it'd say our name and nobody would ask anything. So then he would flip on the light and no one would be around. Uh, well, my brother actually saw a light that traveled through the house at one point. He heard someone coming down the stairs one night and he was lying there awake. And he saw uh, like a sort of like a crouch figure kind of holding this light in their hand. And they were kind of walking through the hall, through, down, down the stairway. And they walked by us and went in the other room and um, uh, disappeared. My my mother, she actually woke up one night and she saw uh, a man in her uh, bedroom and in their bedroom looking at them. And uh, she walked over by the side of the bed and he was kind of dressed in like a 19, like 20s, 30s sort of, because she said he had knickers on and um, like a hat. And um, he had that on and a vest and he walked over to her and kind of looked down at her because he saw her looking at them and he walked around the side of the bed and he walked over to her and looked down at her and they just faded away. My parents were actually, they were out of town. They they went to visit somebody out of town and they weren't going to be back for very late and I went to a movie with my cousin. I was going to go stay at the house and I was a little afraid to stay at the house by myself, honestly, like it was because of all this creepy stuff that happened. So he was dry. His, my aunt was dropping us off and he walked me up to the door, and, and, um, and I saw the light was on, and that wasn't unusual for my parents to, to keep the light on when they were gone. But I was around, I was probably about 14 or so, 15, and um, I saw the light was on, and, and so I, I thought, well, huh. And then I saw the TV was on because there was a big window in the front you could see. Uh, we looked over, and I saw someone sitting in the chair watching TV, but the TV had no screen on it. It was just like this white, like, Kind that of, movie Poltergeist. Like, 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 call it. Go static or whatever. <laughs> it was like, like Poltergeist where it's like, don't go into the light. <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, so so I was like, uh, I, I saw it and, I, and they were just sitting there watching it. You could see this figure in the chair sitting there. 
And I thought, that's weird. Someone's, who's watching TV? And especially since there's nothing on the TV, they're just looking at white space. Like, what are they doing? You know, I told my cousin, I was like, Someone, who's that? You know, and he saw it too. And he's like, I don't know. And uh, and they were just kind of dark. He couldn't see a lot of details, but they were just sort of this dark figure. So I knocked on the door. I don't know if I had the key to get in. I don't think I had the key to get in. So I knocked on the door, walked, and we walked over the window because I was really curious. I thought they'd come to the door and I could see them getting up. And the figure got up from the chair and it um, walked over in front of the TV and turned it off. Man, you know, this was the old manual, the, the days of the manual TV. And it turned it off and then it walked out of sight into the kitchen. The kitchen was, you know, you, it walked out of sight of the window so you couldn't see where it went. But you could tell definitely it went in that area of the house. And the figure was just like this dark kind of mass, you know. It wasn't like a, you didn't see a lot of, lot of details. It was sort of just a sort of dark gray figure. So, of course, I was like, there's no way I'm going in that house. <laughs> 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 and uh, so, uh, we, you know, he, I just hung out with my cousin for the rest until my parents, I knew they were home, and then I told them about it, but there's two of the creepiest ones so one night same thing happened i was i was staying there again like we talked about i mean i don't know my parents were gone this time for the they had gone out of town and i was about 18 years old or something and i thought well it's just one night i'll make it through so i came uh, back in and, and um my parents had a really comfortable bed it was one of those old water beds you know at the time i thought it was comfortable but and so i thought oh that would be nice so um, i decided to stay in there and so trying to go to sleep and like I said I was a little creeped out and I felt like somebody uh, like they were touching my foot and I thought I thought we had some cats so I so I got up I turned the light and I got up and I looked around I didn't see the cats and I thought oh, that's weird I thought I don't know what that is you know so I looked around I couldn't find anything so I uh, lay back down tried to go to sleep again turned off the light and probably about a minute later like it started up again like somebody it felt like somebody was like tickling your feet and so I started to really creeped out, you know. And I jumped up, turned the light, looked around. I thought, oh, and I started thinking it's a bug or something is going on. And so I shook the sheets out, and I started looking around, and I couldn't find anything. And I started to get pretty creeped out, but I was trying to keep it together. And then by the, about the third, so I lay back down, and I just closed my eyes again, and it started back up again. You know, and it's one of those, it's one of those instances where you're really, you're just petrified, like you're in fear. You can't move. You can't. There's nothing you can, because you're afraid. Like, I didn't look up because I thought if I open my eyes and I look up, there's going to be something there. The other thing that happened, probably one of the scariest, because, you know, there are times it could be almost mis mischievous, like where you didn't think, wow, this, it's almost like it was sort of messing with you, kind of having fun, and sort of had a sense of humor to it sometimes. The the weirdest, the, probably the scariest thing that happened was... Um, uh, I love it. You just my, keep going and you're like, well, probably the scariest thing. And all of these, I'm going, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it is weird. Yeah. Like I said, you just kind of get shell-shocked or something. You just get used to it. My brother, he had a... I remember it was like in the middle of the night. It was in the middle of the winter. And all of a sudden, there's just like this pounding at the front door. I thought, you know, we didn't know what was going on. And, and my dad comes to the door and I come to the door and thinking, like, who, what's going on? And it was actually my brother standing there in his underwear. And it was like, you know, it was freezing outside. And he was, like, uh, uh, crying and saying that they're gonna, they were after him, they were going to get him. And I said, uh, you know, we're like, who are you talking about? What are you, you know, what are you saying? And, and um, his story was that he had he'd walked down the stairway and to get a glass of water, and he went downstairs to the kitchen. There was a back room that we had, and he thought he heard somebody in the back room talking. 
so he couldn't quite make it out, and he, they were in the, and it sounded like somebody was, I think he thought it was uh, somebody was outside the, the back window, so they weren't actually in the back room, they were outside the back window, so he went in the back room to look out the window, and then he realized that they were actually, it was coming from the corner of the back room, and he heard somebody talking, and they were discussing us, the family. He thought they were discussing us, and they were saying, like, um, you know, what are we going to do do with them or something like that? And one of them said, what about the little one, which that would have been him. He said he was like, by that time, he had realized, oh, like, you know, well, I, this is a bad, why was I, why am I here, you know, this is bad. Then one of them, like, it almost like they recognized he was there. One of them said, you hear that boy, we're going to come get you. He took off out the back door and ran through the snow to the front door. And so, and there were no tracks in the snow or anything. So that was a very, that was probably a scary, that was probably the scariest thing that I think the, the most, where it felt the most dangerous, you know. Sure. Thanks so much for letting me um, uh, share that with you guys. I have a ghost experience I wanted to share. When I was about 12 or 13, my grandmother died. She was always a sweet woman, and I have many fond memories of her. My biggest regret, however, was that the last time I was around her, I didn't socialize with any of my family, her included, so I never got to say goodbye. Not long after her funeral, I woke up out of the blue one night and saw a figure of what looked like my grandmother in the doorway, but something was off. It was white, full-bodied, and looking solid and misty all at once. The weird thing is, is that she had black pits where her eyes should have been, and I got the feeling she was angry. I don't know if she was mad at me for not saying anything when I last saw her alive, or if it was something pretending to be her, because there were other creepy occurrences on the property after this. All the other times I hear of people's family members coming back, it's always something comforting. That was the scariest moment of my life. We got this from Lisa. I've had experiences with at least two entities, and I've spoken to my mom who seems to be kind of sensitive, which I don't think I am, just to clarify. So I'm just going to talk about those entities separately. My first entity is my great-grandfather, or at least my mother says she could feel that it was him. I was the first granddaughter on my father's side, and I was the only one who got to meet my great-grandfather. I don't know exactly when he died, but my brother and cousin were both two years younger than me, so I can't have been very old. But I've been told that he loved me dearly, that he constantly was buying me clothes and toys and teddies, and he loved nothing more than to bring me for a walk. My favorite teddy is the one he bought me when I was born. It's old and worn, but I still have it. Mostly my mom would just tell me that she could feel he was there, and that he was watching over us. But we've had some more tangible experiences as well. Oft times when I'd go to sleep as a child, I could feel a hand stroking my hair and forehead. It never freaked me out or anything. It just felt familiar and comforting, and it helped me to go to sleep when I grew up. When I mentioned it at random to my mom, she nodded and told me that it was my great-grandfather she could tell. 
My mom also told me a story about a day where she was at work and the entire time it was like my great-grandfather was sitting next to her, telling her she needed to be careful and watch out for her children. It was shortly before I had to go through surgery on my jaw, so she assumed it was related to that. That very same day, my brother crashed when he was riding his quad bike, unsupervised, which he wasn't allowed to do because he wasn't old enough. Had my mother taken the warnings and decided to go home early, she would have been able to stop him. When she came home, my great-grandfather had gone quiet again. My great-grandfather isn't around anymore, though. My mom says it's been a long time since she's been able to feel his presence, and she thinks he's finally passed on to the other side. We had a chat about it, and we've come up with a theory that he was lingering to watch over me and keep an eye on me. But now that I'm a grown young lady who lives by herself and pays her own bills, he maybe felt that his job was done and he could finally go to rest. Unfortunately, it's not all been nice, because there's another entity that lives in my parents' house and my childhood home, although I'm the only one who's had encounters with it. Maybe it just doesn't like young women living on its turf, because the thing is never around unless I'm alone. And the few times I'd see a weird shadow shaped like a person in the corner, nobody was around. Before you start wondering why we didn't get the hell out, I'd like to clarify that my encounters with this entity weren't an everyday occurrence by far, and it never crossed our minds to move because we were happy there and none of us were actually really afraid. I've had two tangible experiences with this entity, meaning two experiences where something that could not be explained away happened. The first time I was just getting dressed and I was putting on a blazer because I was going to a meeting with a doctor about the aforementioned jaw surgery. Not too long after, I felt a sting sensation, but I didn't think to look and just rub my arm for a moment. Later at the doctor's, I was asked to remove my blazer for an x-ray. Right where the stinging had occurred, a long cut had appeared, a cut that hadn't been there before and should not have been able to just randomly appear without creating a gash or a rip in my sleeve. The second occurrence was the most frightening one and the only time in my life I've actually been scared of ghosts. I wasn't home alone, my mother was there, but she was in the shower in one end of the house and I was in the living room in another wing of the house. I'm standing in the middle of the room looking towards a small table when a plant out of nowhere flies off the table aiming for my foot. I managed to step back just in time with a scream and it crashed right where my foot had been. My mom was alerted as I was screaming bloody murder and was tripping over her feet to get a towel wrapped around her and get to me. Quite fortunately, I'm the only one who's ever had any experiences with the malevolent entity, and it seems that my moving out two years ago was enough to make it stop, because it hasn't been plaguing me during any of my visits. Let's hope that was the end of that. Thanks for sharing those, Lisa. During the summer of 1969, before my senior year in college, I was the potter in a granary at Old Economy Village in Ambridge, Pennsylvania. It's a spooky place. I demonstrated how to throw pots and recreated some of the pottery styles that the harmonists had used. I fired my own pots and the village sold them in their gift shop. I was surprised to hear your episode on the legends of Beaver County and listened with great interest. That summer I lived at a house just down the street from the village. My dad and I had to plead with the owners to let me rent it since I had the job and there wasn't anything else advertised at this time close by. Finally, the lady relented and I moved in with my few belongings and clothes. After all, it was just a summer job. One day my parents came to visit. My mother pulled me into the kitchen and said, I can't stay here. I have to leave. Something hates me here. I said, so you feel it too? I was never comfortable there. One night I was watching TV and was suddenly terrified by the sound of banging on the walls. I know it sounds weird, but I couldn't tell where the sound was coming from. It was very loud and just seemed to come from every direction. I was so scared I called my dad at my family home many miles away. 
He at first didn't believe me, but then he heard it while I was on the phone with him, and he said to call the police, which I did. The police came but couldn't find anything wrong inside or out. After they left, I went into the bathroom that I shared with an older couple who lived in the front of the house. They were lovely people. I couldn't attribute the noise to them because they were out of town. I was taken aback by seeing a wooden cane leaning in the corner of the bathroom. I'd never seen it before, and I knew neither the older man or woman used a cane. When they came back, I told them what had happened. They broke down and told me that there was a man who lived in the back apartment where I was living who died about a month before I moved in. They told me he hated women and was a little crazy. He used to bang on the walls with his cane. I found another place to stay for the rest of that summer, a couple of blocks up the street from a tip someone else who worked there gave me. The girl who lived upstairs at the second apartment told me the house I moved from was haunted. I hadn't said anything about what happened. We had just met. I asked her to tell me about it. She basically recounted the same story. Alana came on the show to share with us Haunted Pluckley Village. Before we talked about that, she shared a very personal experience that she had that not only entailed a near-death experience, but also a ghostly one. So Alana is joining us from over in the United Kingdom across the pond to share a supernatural experience. So in 2005, I was about to celebrate my 20th birthday and um, my best friends rung me whilst I was getting ready and said that their cab hadn't turned up and we were all going to a local restaurant myself um, actually in Kent they said their cab hadn't turned up they didn't know how to get here so because I don't drink I said to them that's fine I'll come pick you up and we'll all go together so I drove there and as I was driving there it was absolutely throwing it down with rain it was really really bad so I managed to get them. They all ran into the car and there was four of us. There was myself, my friend Laura was sitting in the front of the car with me. My best friend Anna was to my far left and then my friend Amy was behind me. We were driving back and the sun came out. On my way back through, there's an airport, a large airport called Biggin Hill Airport, which they do a really amazing um, air show there every year. And it's very, very popular in, in the UK. As I was driving back, the sun came out. It was really, really warm and I lost control of my vehicle on a bend. And I later found out there had been a dumping of, of plane fuel um, in some of the fields across the airfield. And it had, when it had rained, it had slipped down through the trees and stuff and had come across the road. And there'd been an accident literally three hours before in exactly the same spot where I lost control of the vehicle. The vehicle spun and it went and hit the barrier on the opposite side of the road and that threw our vehicle back through over a fence. We landed in a tree, quite literally in a tree on my car door. I don't remember a lot. I, I had quite a severe injury to my head. I, When I woke up, my friends were screaming and it was just the most horrendous experience of my life. I woke up and I tried to move my arm and I couldn't and I tried to move my leg and I couldn't. There was a, a wonderful off-duty paramedic that had been two vehicles behind came down and, and she was talking to, to me and saying, it's going to be okay, we're going to get you out, we've called an ambulance, we've called the fire brigade. And then I, I passed out and when I came around the next time, they'd taken Amy and Anna out of the vehicle. Amy had, had hurt her hips and was on her way to hospital, but there was no major damage. Anna had broken her collarbone but she was okay. Laura 
had some cuts and bruises on her from the airbag, but they were very, very lucky. And I expected that was going to be the same news for myself. When I came round, there was about 20 police officers, fire brigade, ambulance, paramedics just surrounding me. And I wear glasses. So at this point, my glasses have been smashed off of my face. So I didn't really see everything that was going on. I just saw lots of different figures and things like that. Everyone seemed very calm. I thought, oh, everything's going to be fine. And as I went to move my arm, I started getting pains across my chest. And they said to me, oh, no, you've broken your sternum, which is your chest plate. Mm -hmm. So I had struggled with breathing. I couldn't move my arm up. It was really, really painful. It was very dull ache going through my arm. Um, I had a lot of pain in my back and in my right leg. And my feet were really, really warm. And it happened to be the fact that I'd actually gone through my leg with my bone and my football (laughs) where Mm. my feet were was Mm. um, filled with blood, which was quite horrible. So I'd lost a lot of blood at this point. There was this lovely lady called Katie who was laying on the front of my vehicle. There was no windscreen there anymore. It was smashed to pieces. And she was talking to me and I could see her very clearly, even though I didn't have my glasses on. And she was saying, everything's going to be fine. You need to keep your head still. We need to make sure that you haven't broken your neck or your back. I felt very calm for some reason. I don't really know why. Um, She was very calming. She was really lovely. The paramedics, there was one behind me that was holding my neck as well. And the they covered me over the sheet and said that they had to cut the roof of my car off. And I made, I think, quite a, a, a comment at the time saying I'd always wanted a convertible. So I was quite excited <laughs> about having the roof of my car removed. It's a heck of a way um, to get one. Yeah, it's, you know, if you're going to do it, you might as well do it properly, I'd say. Um, she kept speaking to me and, and I couldn't really hear her through the, um, the, the, the jaws of life, as they call it, and, and they were talking to me and I kept going in and out of consciousness. But every time I woke up, she was there and she was saying to me, everything's going to be fine. And she was talking to me about herself and saying how she was a paramedic, that she was off duty. She was just so lucky that she'd seen the accident and that everything was going to be okay, that, that they would fix me up in hospital. At this point, I, you know, I was very, very full of morphine, feeling reasonably comfortable at that stage. They placed a blackboard in. I was taken out of the vehicle, but my foot got stuck under the pedal on where I had the separation of the bone in my femur. Um, as they were trying to pull me out, it was pulling the bone quite badly on my leg. I was going in and out of consciousness. At one point, my, my heart stopped. Wow. And the only way that I can describe it is I felt like I would, I'd overslept for school. When I woke up, I sort of woke up with a jolt, which is obviously from where they restarted my heart. And it felt as though I'd fallen asleep in an appropriate place and that everyone was telling me off mm-hmm. because everyone's screaming and shouting at you and, and it was really weird but I felt very very peaceful when I was asleep they when I did come around I was in an ambulance and they said to me that it, it happened when they first arrived on the scene and that it happened again then so I didn't realize that it, I had already stopped breathing at one stage and this was the second time and they said it's because my sternum was crushing my lungs and, and my heart so finally got to hospital it was horrendous um my my parents were there and and my parents had been divorced since I was nine and this is my 20th birthday was going to be the next day they hadn't seen each other since I was nine and they were in a room together which has been so stressful for them and my brother was there and finally got myself into hospital and my friends were okay which was the main thing I was worried about and I don't think I really realized how serious my injury was until on my actual 20th birthday so the next morning I was wheeled in for a seven-hour surgery, um, and I had my leg fixed, my arm fixed, my 
skull fracture fixed, my jawbone fixed, my sternum fixed, my hip, my ribs. Um, it was pretty horrendous. I was very, very lucky. Um, they said to me I'd probably never walk again, but I am. I'm, I'm walking absolutely not fine. I mean, it hurts, but I walk again now. So after months of rehabilitation and going through extra surgeries and things like that, I was finally allowed to, to go home. And I said to my dad, I just want to go and see the paramedics and then the ambulance and the fire brigade and everybody that looked after me. And in the UK, I don't know if it's in everywhere, but in some hospitals, they've got the ambulance bays are actually based in the hospital. So you can go and see those people and ask them who was on shift, find out information. And they, they actually get people together so you can thank them because it's an incredible job that they do. I'm only alive because of those people. So my dad arranged for me to go and meet up with the paramedics and for me I really wanted to see Katie who was the lady that was in front of me and, and you know I was very excited about speaking to her when we got there I saw one of the ladies called Rachel who was one of us that sat behind me holding my head and there was two guys there and I was asking where Katie was and they said oh sorry there, there isn't a Katie that works here and the lady Rachel that had been sat behind me was getting very teary and I said to her you know you were sat behind me and Katie was in front of me I said that you know I remember she was blonde and, and she was so lovely and she was so friendly and, and Rachel began to cry and I didn't understand what was going on and, and didn't think anything of it at the time just thought you know she's she's really emotional about how well I've done or something like that mm -hmm. I didn't really think too much about it we met the fire brigade and again I mentioned to Katie and they all just sort of stared at me quite blankly and one of the chief of fire there said you know, we're really happy that you're alive and, and, and we wish you all the best and sorry that we can't track down this Katie for you. So about six weeks later, I've moved back in with my mum and she's tending to me, bless her, for everything that I've been doing. And we get a phone call from Rachel and she asks if we could go and meet for coffee. And so my mum took me in the wheelchair and we went to meet in a, in a place called Dartford in Kent. This lady turned up and she said to me that she thinks that she knows who Katie is and so I'm very excited and she brings some photographs with her and she asked me if that was Katie and it was the lady in in, in the photographs was Rachel Katie and two other gentlemen she said this is my best friend Katie she was my partner in as a paramedic and she's been she was my partner for almost seven years I was maid of honor at her wedding and she was at mine and she died last year and i said well I didn't understand what she meant by that and she said Katie was a paramedic first and foremost she was amazing at her job she'd won awards and that I wasn't the first person that had mentioned to Rachel that they'd seen Katie at scenes with Rachel and it was so surreal because I was trying to explain to my mum that I 100% saw her and my mum was looking at me like yeah you're on way too much morphine or something like that I saw this woman, she was there, she was holding my face, I felt her, I saw her, she was as real as, you know, anybody is to me and she spoke to me and she calmed me down and she made me feel like it was okay to, to be in pain but that it would get better. From that point on I guess I became a little bit more sensitive and, and less close-minded about seeing spirits or guardian angels. I don't know what she is or who she is but she was she she helped to keep me alive and I genuinely believe that that's who I met on that day and I'm still friends with Rachel now who's 
an incredible paramedic. She's now one of the top people for, for Kent Paramedic Societies. Uh, you know, she works with teenagers who have had horrendous car accidents. She says even to this day that more people say that they've seen Katie. Since then, I've had several experiences, but I think that for me was the uh, the door into the paranormal for me. Well, a couple of things. Number one, for anybody who would be doubting your story or thinking you were hallucinating on morphine, you have mm-hmm. a name and yes. a face and you have evidence that it goes to somebody else who passed yes. away. Yeah. I, I don't know how anybody could think you were hallucinating because you can't hallucinate a name and a face. You like can't a real person. person. Yeah. No. And the other thing is, what's interesting about your story, I've heard a lot of people who've had near-death experiences seems like when they come back, they are more sensitive. It's almost like once you've been through that door, it's still partially open to you. So very I, interesting. I, I definitely think that it's, it's, if not, it's almost like raising awareness as well in, in myself. In, in, I do wonder if sometimes I'm walking around and the people that I'm seeing maybe aren't there to everybody else, but they might be to me. But I, I also know that I feel things differently and I experience things differently and it might be because I've been given the amazing opportunity of being able to continue my life after the age of 20. It could have ended there. And so one of the gifts that I've been given is is to appreciate life when so much death happens. Well, exactly. And it sounds like you recovered pretty well. You said you still have some pain in your leg, but otherwise, mm. are you doing okay? Yeah, it's I've got large large scars and and uh and i've been through several operations since because <laughs> my leg almost got attached wrong when they put it back on oh geez <laughs> it sounds terrible Great. all the ligaments and the tendons got kind of messed up when they surgically put a pin all the way through my my right femur um my leg actually twisted to the point where sometimes i'd walk and my face my foot would be facing the wrong way which is quite disturbing great <laughs> mm. it's um yeah so i've had that i've had reconstructive surgery on my leg well i know surgery is no fun so it takes a lot out of you yeah and i still get chest pains because I've, I've my, my sternum clicks it's really strange I, I've, I've never ever heard of anybody ever breaking their sternum before but well um, you know somebody now i didn't break mine but i've cracked mine and so every uh, so often i know exactly what you're talking about sometimes oh, it'll it's stick painful yeah. yeah, and it'll you'll get a sharp pain, and sometimes I have to stand in a doorway and kind of stretch myself to pop it. Yeah, I do that like Blue the Bear. I have to sort of rub myself up against a door pane or something. Yeah, so I know yeah. exactly what you're talking about. I, oh. Mine definitely was not as severe as yours, but yeah, I've cracked it. It is so painful, and also sometimes I'll be talking and then it just clicks, and it makes my voice or my or my or my breathing change. <laughs> it's really strange. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm very very lucky. I'm I've got an incredible family that didn't give up on me once and said to me that you will walk and you will do things and and yeah I've I've gone from there and and it's been I'm I'm almost I'd say fully recovered so yeah I'm very very lucky. Well fabulous. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. It's a very personal mm-hmm. one and and we feel privileged to have you tell it to us. Yes we got definitely do. Jeez. Those were great stories Denise, weren't they? Oh, th- very much so. And it's just amazing how many experiences our own personal listeners have. I know. Thank you for sharing those with us. They're all very personal and sometimes hard to share with other people. Of course, here at History Goes Bump, nobody thinks that you're crazy because you've had them. Absolutely not. I'm starting to think I'm the odd one because I haven't had one. Exactly. And I'm not tempting anything, just for the record. <laughs> Well, we'd love to hear more of your stories throughout the year. You can send them anytime you want to, and we'll read them on air. We love sharing them with everybody. 
Well, you guys have a very happy Halloween. Thanks for joining us for this one. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye.